All right, again, welcome to Seven Hills Fellowship. We are glad that you're here. And uh, one of the things that we say over and over again is you're not here by accident, that we really believe that you're here uh, because God's drawn you to this place. And so I would just absolutely uh, ask you to keep your heart and your mind open to whatever it is that God might communicate to you today through a song, through a conversation, through the sermon, whatever the case may be. Um, I think that God has drawn you to this place this morning. All right, um, today we actually are going to have a guest preacher. His name is Ross Jelgerheis. For those of you who don't know any better, Jelgerheis is a Dutch last name. Ross is a buddy of mine from Covenant College who then went to Covenant Seminary. He's here with his wife, Sarah, their son, Gus. One of Ross's claims to fame is that in high school, he was the backup quarterback to Kirk Cousins, who's the starting quarterback for the Washington Redskins. So if there's any time where it was actually, actually like cool and okay to be a backup, anything, it's when you're back up to a professional athlete. Like, that's okay. Anyway, he also lives two houses down from Kirk Cousins, which is kind of neat. So I'm just going to go ahead and invite Ross up. He can probably tell you a bit more about himself, but I'm going to turn everything over to you, man. Good morning, everyone. It's uh, an honor and a privilege to be here and bring God's word to you. And uh, I want to open us up in a word of prayer as we begin. Heavenly Father, you say that your word is sweeter than honey, and I pray that you'd give us just a little taste of that honey this morning as we open your word, and that you would encourage us, and you would challenge us, and that you would help us to become a little bit more like your son, Jesus Christ, and it is in his name we pray, amen. I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to uh, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11. Um, if the Gospel of Mark were scripted as a movie and they used Star Wars music as the soundtrack, I would, I would imagine that the background music leading up to the scene that we are about to discuss this morning might sound a little something like this. Dun, 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 dun. Uh, it's just a moment in the story where the dark side, if you will, um, is building momentum, uh, growing in urgency in their plan against Jesus. And the tension in the story is building, and the audience is probably getting a little bit more on the edge of their seat, and the climax of the story is about to happen. And we find Jesus uh, in a town called Bethany, just outside of Jerusalem with his disciples, and things are just starting to get real. So let's pick up there in Mark 14. It was now two days... Before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, as Jesus was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, 
wherever the gospel is proclaimed in all the world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. <clears throat> so apparently it's a thing to be in your 20s and to get invited to a lot of weddings. I have been to over 18 weddings in the last couple of years, and don't get me wrong, it's an awesome thing. I love going to weddings. But there was one wedding in particular that was a little bit harder than the other ones. It was the wedding of one of my friends, and I was kind of hoping that he would ask me to be a groomsman for him, and he never did. And there was this sense when I was at the wedding, um, and while I've, you know, kept up a great relationship with him, and we st- were still great friends, there was this sense while I was at the wedding that I felt a little bit like an outsider. Um, as I watched him at the head table with his groomsmen, laughing and enjoying each other, and just hanging out a lot the whole night, uh, I felt a little left out, and uh, a little bit of a sense of unworthiness. What's it like for you to be an outsider? It kind of cuts to the core of who you are. It feels a little bit like shame, doesn't it? Uh, when you know everyone around you seems to be finding a spouse and you're not, or everyone around you seems to have an awesome job that they're enjoying and you hate your job or can't find a job, or um, when you see a picture of some of your friends online at an event that uh, they didn't invite you to, or maybe your kids are the worst behaved of all the other kids. Uh, psychologists have actually done studies, and they have found that the feeling of being an outsider in a social situation is actually very similar. Very similar things go on inside the body as when you're experiencing physical pain. And so that just helps you understand the intensity of that experience. We are all, we all were outsiders in one sense, were we not? At least in the spiritual sense. The Bible says you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You can't get much more outside than being dead. And this story that we just read is about outsiders. It's written for outsiders. Scholars say um, these three stories that we just read, though on the surface they may seem unrelated, they together form a literary sandwich. What does that mean? So the first section, it talks about the chief priests uh, plotting to arrest Jesus. So the chief priests, these insiders of that day, these religious insiders, Uh, plotting against Jesus. And then the final story is of Judas, who's also an insider in the world's eyes. He's one of Jesus' very own disciples, and he betrays Jesus. So these are bookends of two stories of insiders uh, rejecting Jesus. And you'd think, you know, at first reading, that those two stories should just be back-to-back. They kind of flow right into each other and, and have a lot in common. But Mark inserts in between those stories a story of an outsider, at least in that day, of a woman who comes into this party. And I think what Mark is trying to do, and this woman shows extravagant devotion to Jesus, and I think what Mark is trying to do is show us this one main thing, that the gospel is for outsiders. The gospel is for outsiders. Um, though we all were dead in our sins, the beautiful thing that we have talked a lot about already this morning is that we were adopted into God's family. Though we didn't deserve it, God in his great love and mercy adopted us, and we are now adopted outsiders. But what's the reality? What's the struggle in that? We forget that, don't we? We, we grow desensitized to the great depths that Christ saved us from. Um, 
we struggle from what many have called spiritual amnesia, uh, forgetting where we came from. Instead of acting like adopted outsiders, we act like entitled insiders. So my question for us this morning is, where are you at with this? Where are you at in your spiritual amnesia? How's that going for you? And I want to ask three further diagnostic questions to help us kind of process exactly where we are at this morning in our spiritual amnesia. And the first question is this. Do you ever experience Christ as a threat? Do you ever experience Christ as a threat in your life? Look at me again at verse 1. It says, It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. So who are these chief priests and scribes? These are the most respected religious leaders of that day. If, if they were um, doing their thing in our current Christian evangelical context, they would be the ones who had thousands of followers on Twitter, who had top ten podcasts on iTunes, and multiple New York Times best-selling books. Uh, these guys were the insiders of insiders, at least in the world's eyes, religiously speaking. And if you were to kind of read through the book of Mark, you would notice this growing tension between these religious leaders and Jesus. You kind of think of the image of a, mar- a marshmallow in a microwave, just this slowly building tension um, between them. And Why? What was that tension all about? Well, I think a major part of it was that these religious leaders viewed Jesus as a threat. He was a threat to their power that they had in that society. He was a threat to their current way of life. If they were to accept Jesus as their Lord, it would um, have a significant impact on the power that they had. And of course, they also believed he was blasphemous. So these, we see, are insiders We're rejecting Christ's authority. And ironically, this is happening at Passover. Um, And what was Passover, if you remember? Passover was a celebration of outsiders getting adopted by God. Israel, little Israel in Egypt, in powerful Egypt, was rescued out of Egypt by God. So these outsiders, in the world's eyes, coming into God's family. And... During this time, these religious leaders are are rejecting their very Lord. So what are areas of your life where you experience Christ as a threat, where you struggle to give Christ the throne? I know one for me can be college football. Um, While college football is an awesome thing, uh, I can tend to abuse it. My identity can be wrapped up in the success of my team. And whether they're doing good or bad, my identity can be found in that. And I can get so caught up in all the news and the recruiting news, and it can just cause me to not be present with my family or present in some of the other things that I need to be doing. Um, Maybe for you it's Netflix. Uh, Netflix is an awesome thing, an awesome way to connect with our culture, but it can easily uh, take over our lives. Or maybe it's money, and you struggle to understand that it is better to give than to receive. And I want to also talk about how this idea of Christ being a threat to some areas of our lives, how it affects our prayer life. I heard an awesome sermon recently where the pastor talked about how one of the greatest barriers to a deeper and richer prayer life 
is not a lack of seminars or strategies or steps, which are all good things to be used. He said the biggest thing, the biggest barrier is our sin. And that may sound simple and generic, but what he meant was our lack of really truly processing our sin and bringing our sin before God in our prayers um, is a way to experience deeper fellowship with him, to be more known in his presence and to feel his love more. And that's had a profound impact on my own prayer life. So I also want to talk about what does Christ do in that place of our feeling threatened by him? What does he do? Does that push him away? Does he move away from us? No, I want to say that he moves towards us in that place. What did he do with Peter? After Peter had betrayed him and denied him three times, Jesus comes back to Peter, moves towards him, and says, Peter, do you love me? Feed my lambs. He entrusts Peter with the leadership of the church, even after he had denied him. So he moves towards him in that. And what does Psalm 23 say? It says, surely goodness and love will follow you all the days of your life. And that Hebrew word for follow you there actually has more of a sense of pursue you or stalk you. The the goodness and mercy of the Lord will pursue you all the days of your life. Have you ever heard the story of Daryl Davis? Daryl Davis is a man who befriended many members of the Ku Klux Klan. And um, through his relationship with them, many of them ended up stepping down from the Klan and handing in their robes. And a very important detail about Daryl Davis is that he was an African-American. This African-American man uh, moved towards his enemies, moved towards these people who viewed him as a threat. And he built relationships with them. He actually started with the leader. He was was up in Maryland, and he started with the leader of the Ku Klux Klan in Maryland and invited him over to his house, got to know his family. Um, Some say he took better care of some of these Ku Klux Klan members' families than they did themselves. And one by one, these men started um, turning in their robes. They actually gave them to Daryl. At one point, he had 12 former robes of Ku Klux Klan members in his closet. And the Ku Klux Klan in Maryland ended up dissipating for a while because of him. And I see in that a picture of what Christ does in our moments of feeling threatened by him in different areas of our lives. He moves towards, he moves into that. So I want us to to realize, to begin reducing Christ's threatness in our lives, we have to believe there is actually more freedom with Christ on the throne in our hearts rather than ourselves. There is more freedom with Christ on the throne of all of our lives rather than ourselves. A man named Brian Chapel has once said, a man without God's law is not free. A man without God's law is not free. So we are adopted outsiders And if gratitude is the natural human counterpart to grace, let us then in gratitude and gratefulness give all of our lives over to Christ who moves towards us. So that's the first question I wanted us to process together. Um, Do you ever experience Christ as a threat? The next question is, do you emphasize mission over worship? Do you emphasize mission over worship? over worship. And when I say worship here, I mean more personal worship, not necessarily um, the uh, worship in the church, but just your personal worship. So let's walk through some of these verses together. Let's look at verse 3 and following. 
says, while Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, uh, we don't know exactly who Simon the leper was, as he was reclining at table, a woman came. And I want you to catch the significance of that uh, to give you a little perspective. For a woman to come into a social setting like this in that day would be kind of similar to if a summer data entry intern at a large company just walked in uninvited to a board of the CEO's meeting and just sat down and joined the meeting. That would be a little bit of the idea of what's going on here. It would have been jarring, and the original audience reading this, would have, that would have stuck out to them, that a woman came in to this meeting. What does she do? She came with an alabaster flask of ointment, of pure nard, very costly. And scholars show that Mark, in the Greek language, he actually stumbles over himself in the Greek language to convey the worth of this perfume she brought in. Um, it's worth, uh, that it says, a year's wages, 300 denarii, which is a modern equivalent of fifty to $55,000. And to give you a little perspective on that, um, the woman will probably appreciate this a little more. Chanel Number no. 5, it's an expensive perfume, $1,500 a, a, a jar. Um, this perfume makes that look like Walmart sales rack material. This stuff is precious. And what does she do with it? She breaks the flask and pours all of it over Jesus' head. What devotion that she shows. What love what sense of worthiness that she has of Jesus. So what do they say? It says, some who, there were some there who said to themselves indignantly, they were ticked off, why was the ointment wasted like that? This ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. So did you hear what they said? They said that what this woman did, she wasted that perfume that her display of affection should have been used for mission. It should have been used to help the poor. So what does Jesus say in response? Let's look at verse 6 and following. Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. And what he's saying there is that she has given all that she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. That is quite a statement for him. Just let that sink in for a moment. That Jesus saw such beauty in what this woman was doing that he, wa- he wants the whole world to know what she did. So how exactly does Jesus respond to this? This is a, a teachable moment for de- Jesus towards these men. And I want you to be sure and recognize that he does not say helping the poor or being on mission is bad. Not at all. I mean, if you look at the whole life of Jesus, he was all about that. and He did so much of that. He says, while you can and should help the poor and be on mission, there is something more important that was going on in that moment. The one who was coming not only to end poverty one day, but to also end the root cause of poverty, the fallenness of humanity, to take care of the, 
the root problem of all of the struggles we experience, including poverty. He is here. He's here to inaugurate the kingdom of God. So for us, let us be sure that we love and worship the one who is the poor and needy's greatest need before we follow him into the world to spread his blessings. Think about the great commandment. How does it go? Does it go, love your neighbor as yourself and love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind? No, it starts with love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And from that, that empowers you to love your neighbor as yourself. Or think about the Lord's Prayer. It begins, our Father in heaven. This this statement of intimacy with the Father. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. You get this sense of worship there. Holy be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's mission. But what comes before the mission in Lord's Prayer? Worship. Worship empowers the mission. Folks, if part of what mission is, is a poor man telling another poor man where they can get bread, then we need to make sure we get our poor man on, that we renew our sense of being adopted outsiders And what is the primary way to do that? I think the primary way to do that is worship. Uh, John Piper has famously said, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. You just get that sense that worship empowers mission. And and C.S. Lewis also helps us in this. He says, when first things are put first, worship, Second things are not suppressed, but increased. Mission. So you want to love people better on mission? You need to start by loving God better. Put the horse before the carriage. So that's our second question. Do you emphasize mission over worship? As you think about your current um, state of spiritual amnesia. And the final question is, do you ever betray Christ's love? Do you ever betray Christ's love? Look at me at verses 10 and 11. It says, Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. Do you know what it's like to be betrayed by someone you love and who thought you thought loved you? Judas, a man chosen by Christ to be his disciple, who walked with Christ, ate with Christ, probably asked him a lot of questions and got to know him really well. He saw the way that Christ was patient with the disciples, including himself. He saw Christ's love and compassion on the crowds. He heard his amazing teaching. He saw his wondrous miracles. This man, Judas, betrays his Lord for a sum of money. We see the woman earlier, for her faith, sacrifices her money. And we see Judas, Judas, for money, sacrifices his faith. And this incident challenges us this morning in at least two ways. First, notice how Mark accents the fact that Judas was one of the twelve. This shows us that it is possible to be very close to Jesus, to have spent much time with him and his followers, and to still be a double-minded person. To confess Jesus with your lips, to go to church and small groups and mission trips, etc. And you can still be far from Christ in your heart. 
What does Jesus say? He says, confess me with your lips, but also believe me in your hearts. So that's one way that this challenges us. Another way is um, we often betray Jesus ourselves, do we not? Maybe we don't capital B betray him like Jesus, Judas did as an unbeliever, but we constantly, daily, lowercase b, betray him. And Judas's betrayal should lead us to ask, is our betrayal worth it? Is it a good bargain that we make? When we betray Jesus, as one pastor says, we never, ever get enough in return for our betrayal. We know from Matthew that Judas betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, which was a couple thousand dollars in our day. So it wasn't for nothing, but it's hardly worth your innocence. It's hardly worth the habits of the mind that get developed. It's hardly worth even your soul. Judas made a terrible bargain that day, and we make that bargain all the time. We sell out Jesus for 30 minutes of porn. We sell out Jesus for one fun Friday night. We sell out Jesus for a good reputation at work. We sell out Jesus for the approval of our friends. We sell out Jesus for a lot less than 30 pieces of silver, and we never, ever get what we've given up. So sometimes when you step back and think about the immense grace of Christ that he has shown us, the magnificent light that he has shown us in his love for us, you wonder why would we ever go back into the darkness? But we do. As the song says, we are prone to wander. And I hope we feel it this morning. But praise be to Jesus, who died for people as unfaithful as us, and who forgives us when we repent. The gospel is for outsiders like you and me. So let's be on our guard. Let's ask Christ to give us eyes to see when we are forgetting that we were outsiders who were shown great love by him. Let's ask him to awaken us from our spiritual amnesia. Most of you are probably familiar with the movie Miracle. If you're not familiar with the movie, you're probably familiar with the story that it's about. It's of the 1980 U.S. hockey team that ended up upsetting the Soviet Union, uh, who was the powerhouse of that day, and then they went on to win the gold. And the story traces um, the picking of their coach and um, kind of the ups and downs of the team as they went through that. And there's this one scene that I really like. It's a really intense scene in that movie. And it's after the team had just played an exhibition game. And they were, it was towards the beginning of their time together, and they weren't playing well as a team. And they ended up losing the game. The coach brings them back out on the ice after the game and has them, do, has them skate sprints. And so they're doing all these sprints. There's this famous scene where he just goes again, 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 again. And these guys just do these sprints again and again. And, you know, in the middle of one of their sprints, in between one of their sprints, uh, all the guys are bent over just totally exhausted. You, your heart's just starting to ache for them as you're watching Uh, One of the guys yells out his name, Mike Arruzzioni. And the coach gets a smirk on his face. He knows what he's doing there. Earlier in the movie, the the coach had all the guys say their name and what team that they had played for. So all the guys said their name and what college they played for. And there was some rivalry there from some of the colleges that they had played for. So this guy yells out his name during all these sprints. The coach asks him, Mike, what team do you play for? And he answers, the United States of America. And the coach replies in his wonderful Minnesota accent, Gentlemen, 
the name on the front of your jersey is a whole lot more important than the name on the back. And it marks a shift in the team's ethos. The team starts to come together more as a team and they play much better. And I love that scene because it shows the power of knowing who you are and the difference that that can make going forward. And so I want to encourage each of us this morning. Remember the name, the name that is on the front of our jerseys, Adopted Outsiders, is a whole lot more important than the name that's on the back. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, what a wonderful story we have just looked through. Um, We thank you so much for moving towards us in our weakness and moving towards us in the the many ways that we avoid you and don't want to let you in. Um, And we thank you for the great love you showed us on the cross and um, the power you showed over uh, death and over our sin and the resurrection that we celebrated last week and that we hopefully continue to celebrate um, every day. And we ask right now that as the seed of your word has just been sown, that it would fall on fertile soil, that our hearts would be fertile soil and take that seed and let it take deep root, that it may bear fruit in our lives to your glory. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.